Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Daily Friend Show. I'm your host, Nicholas Larimer, and today I'm joined by Mr. Michael Morris. Michael, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. A bit chilly and wet today, but otherwise, all good, thank you. Excellent. And this is Mr. Herman Pretorius. Herman, how are you doing? Hi, Nick. Hi, Michael. I'm doing well. It's a Friday. Uh, so, yeah, no, it's, it's going well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's all it's chill. It's actually bar, good to see you again, Herman. All right. Likewise, Michael. We haven't actually we've spoken, yeah. but we haven't seen each other for a few months. Yeah, indeed, indeed. No, this is, uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and the, we are very happy to have you back on the show, uh, Herman. Um, and yeah. I, as based on the comments, so are, so are most of the listeners. Okay, um, let's get into the news of what's going on at the moment. And the first is this uh, piece in the Daily Maverick by Feral Hafaji asking um, who's really running South Africa? And she goes through examples of how Cyril Ramaphosa seems to be kind of absent in a lot of ways from the political debate. That uh, this view of him as a consensus seeker is, seems to be very correct, as in that he doesn't seem to do anything unless absolutely everyone is on board. And into this leadership vacuum appears to be stepping ANC Secretary General Fakile Mbalula. Um, she points out that it was Fakile Mbalula who threatened to get rid of Minister Public Enterprises Minister Praveen Gordhan if there are no tangible improvements in the transport utility Transnet. Um, he had a special uh, hatred for Transnet, whereas when, when he was Transport Minister, he obviously didn't like them, and he kept complaining about Transnet the entire time he was Minister. Um, even though it's the president who's supposed to get rid of ministers, Fakile Balua was out here threatening him, and apparently he was reported to Cyril Ramaphosa by Praveen Gordhan for this disrespect and breaking of the, the hierarchy. Um, Balula also said that the Reserve Bank needed to really watch itself and and uh, uh, take account of the cost of living, and it couldn't just keep raising interest rates forever, even though the Reserve Bank is supposed to be independent. Um, and really, he kind of seems to be, in a lot of ways, the public face of the show. If you look at the episodes of the, of the country, if you, if you look at the episodes of the show over the last couple of weeks, you'll find that Fakile Balula's name appears in them probably a lot more than Soro Raposa. He's always out there. He's talking to the media. It was him who talked to the BBC in that, in that uh, long interview recently. So, Herman, let me start with you. Um, what do you make of this uh, this supposed <laughs> rise to prominence of Fakila Balula, once thought of as the kind of weirdo head of the ANC Youth League, was a bit funny, but like, you know, kind of fun for a soundbite. He's increasingly becoming one of the most important politicians in the country. Yes, no, and I think what 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 this illustrates to me is uh, if, if someone like Fakila Balula, who is truly a lightweight, um, can have so much party, power in a party, it really shows how far the, the ANC has fallen in terms of a very shallow bench. Um, if, they, if, if one tries to think of uh, a generational succession of ANC leaders, you have sort of the Mandela, Oliver Tombo generation um, that went out very much in the, in, in the 90s and that was their great last hurrah. At that time, the young up-and-comers were Zuma, Mbeki, Nkozana Lamini Zuma, um, and uh, Ramaphosa, uh, although Ramaphosa is a bit younger than the others. Uh, and then after that, you don't really have much of a, a generational bench that could take the party into the next generation of, of leadership. 
Um, you've got people like Ronald Lamola, who is seen as broadly competent. Um, but that's about it. Uh, in the past, when uh, the, the, the leadership of the ANC and the cabinet, there was this idea of these were the big beasts. These were leaders of substance, of course, not across the board, but they were people with uh, background, with education, um, with knowledge of the world, if not education, um, in the formal sense. But now the fact that the ANC has really in its most powerful party political position um, in terms of pulling the, the, the sitting at the steering wheel of, uh, of the ship, even though not being strictly captain of it, is someone like Fikile Mbalula, who can uh, boast of very, very few successes in his time as part of the constitutional governing executive of the country. Um, it just shows you how vacuous uh, Ramaphosa must be if a lightweight like Mbalula can outcompete him for party power, but also on a broader scale, how the ANC went from a party that genuinely attracted some of the best minds in the country for a century to uh, a, a husk, a husk of, it form, of its former self. If you think about the fact that Sol Plaiki was the first holder of the General Secretary Office mm. of the ANC, and you oh, man. That <laughs> that's Lula a big downgrade. <laughs> is inheritor of that, of, of someone of profound intelligence, skill, nuance, and sophistication to, to Malula. I ah uh, it's it, there's something there's something truly, truly tragic about how far the ANC is fallen. Yeah, no, it, it actually it strangely never occurred to me that uh, <clears throat> Salt Blakey held the exact same position as Fikile Malula. <laughs> that's that's a big change. Um um, I guess it's a century, but still not not great. Uh, Michael, what do you make of this? You you were struck by some of the comments made in response to this uh, article that uh, Ferial wrote um, about uh, mm. the yeah. Power I mean, the yeah, I think uh, before turning to that, it's sort of pick up on on a point that uh, that Hamron makes very effectively, and that is the the absence of young talent. You know, this is literally what. The party has, has has come to is a figure like Fikili Mbalula, who becomes so important to them. He is the man who goes in the BBC, you know, this, this kind of great um, t television interview, and he himself is the one who kind of shares it with 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 the people, um, with with the followers. And then he picks on you know somebody like Praveen Gordon. I'm I'm not necessarily a, by, by no means a fan of Praveen Gordon, but a solid bloke who has his own mind and and and. Uh, you know, ways of doing things, and it's reconsidered, and so on. And a veteran, somebody who's got got some kind of reputation in the in the organisation. He's done things, um, he's got experience, but he can just be um, lightly rebuked, um, a bit like a naughty schoolboy, by the leader of the party. And I think that those are very good points that that Herman's uh, brought out there. So we end up, you know, instead of with the solid blokes who are and, and women who have you know, really risen through the ranks have absorbed the institutional values and, and ethos and so on. we now have these these um politicians who are just going for the gap um and 
there were just two things, as you say. I, I was I was particularly drawn uh, to the end of the piece by Feral Hafiji and Daily Maverick. Um, it's just just sorry, just before we get there, she she writes about um, Mbalula with with his braggadocio and hip shooting style. I suppose shooting from the hip style is what she really means. He risks confusing the rest of the country, which is not au fait with the governing party's particular culture and practices. I suppose that's true. The thing that worries me, in a way, is that he he can seem to be quite impressive. I'm sure to a lot of people, he might seem to be quite impressive to a lot of people. Somebody who, you know, is not a coward by the by the BBC saying, you know, tells it like it is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and he kind of answers back. But the thing that I did find quite intriguing, and there's a kind of faintly menacing aspect to it, is the. The very last paragraph of uh, Ferial's piece, where she approaches the, the ANC spokesperson Mashlengi Bengu Matsiri for her view on the two centres of power issue, and it's quite a quite a detailed, uh, probably ten line, two hundred and fifty word res response. Um, very assured, very certain, no embarrassment. It's a kind of unembarrassed statement of exactly where the party stands. They see the party sees no contradiction. Um, the governing party, she says, receives a mandate from the electorate and its manifesto gives direction. It's very kind of ideological ducks in a the row there. It must rightly, therefore, oversee the performance of the government. Um, so to her, it's it, it, there's no question of any kind of embarrassing merging of roles here, state and party. This is really where the party is, in fact, right at the center of it. Um, and she says, there's nothing untoward about the Secretary General expressing an opinion, <laughs> uh, which is quite intriguing. And then the very final line of the of the piece is that Bengu Batsiri said the ANC is finalizing a performance report on all its employees in government. So, uh, And this having said that the president is nominated by the ANC and all of them, the cabinet, are subject to the ANC. So, yeah, it is it's that faintly menacing aspect to it. Uh, and uh, coming from somebody as Herman describes him, you know, a young guy who's not very impressive. All in all, it shows what this this once great party has come to. Right, uh, how the how the mighty Ramaphosa has fallen from mm. being sort of center of political life and uh, seen as like the most powerful politician in the country to now having people question whether he's even running the <laughs> ANC, which he is the leader of. Um, so, Herman, my question to you after Ramaphosa goes, and who knows when that will be, uh, is the next uh, is, is the next context, contest going to be between Mbalula and uh, Mashitile? I, I think it, it genuinely is at this stage um, so difficult to say. Uh, with the, the, the current cloud hanging over Mashatile, um, with um, his thugs beating up, you know, people on the streets, um, so his political uh, capital is currently certainly not uh, a safe investment. Um, the problem, however, is I, that I foresee for the ANC's future leadership question is who wants to inherit the party at what stage? Um, if, 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 if you take over the party just after the 2024 elections where it might lose power or it might be in government but not in office but not really in power do you do you want to own whatever comes about from the, the next parliamentary and governmental term where uh 
the party might either be a minority government, a, a squeaky uh, majority. In uh, in other words, it needs party uh, and party parliamentary caucus discipline. It is not known for, or it will be in coalition with. Um, you know, some of the small fry parties or the EFF, in none of those circumstances or scenarios, does the party strike me as something that someone at that point would want to tether their political career to? Because either um, you will look weak, incompetent, absent, or, or, or simply ineffective, um, even if you do try your best. So it's it's very much a question of who who's brave enough to take over a collapsing party that is based on a patronage culture that the state it seeks to run can no longer afford. Um, it, you know, who wants to captain uh, that team? And, and, and part of the question is also uh, at, at, at what point? It's, it's a bit like Mitch McConnell in the US. We, we, we chatted about that. Uh, uh, one of the reasons why McConnell at 81, you know, very, very impressive man throughout his career, but he is obviously too old. Part of why they, the, the, the Republicans can't now say, look, Mitch, you've, you've had a solid run, is he's in a state where the governor is a Democrat. So if McConnell were to vacate his seat before 2026, a Democrat would get into office. So the question of what comes next, who... At, under what circumstances is losing Ramaphosa going to be politically beneficial to the ANZ? Then you get to the question of who is competent or capable of leading such a difficult organization. And then you get to the question of whether that person, if someone like that exists, would want to lead the party in that state. And so, so can I, can I push back? Might, might be naive enough point. and arrogant enough <laughs> to, to take that. Right, so if I may push back slightly on that last point, um, <laughs> the uh, uh, if you look at a party like Cope, you'll always find someone willing to take over the leadership helm, regardless of how dire the situation is. <laughs> Fair enough, and that and I'm sorry, I, and that's the sort of weird uh, cadenza at the end, and that's why Fakile Mbalula might actually be the future of the ANC. Um, Indeed, he he has the self delusion. Um, enough that might actually think, yeah, I can, I can legitimately turn around this thing because I've been delving a bit into the into the party structures over the last thirty years. My word, there's nothing left, nothing in terms of structures. Um, so I don't know. Interesting, interesting to think about. Oh, and uh, a, a, Nick, a, a, a very last thing that I just quickly want to touch on uh, that Michael actually discussed is this this party and state uh, question is. Number one, we should understand that the ANC has always quite blatantly considered the ANC superior to the constitution uh, of, of well, the Republic. Was it yes, Mbeki uh, governed like that. I don't know if he ever said it. Uh, people like Lindiwesi Sulu uh, expressly made that point. Uh, Ramaphosa has expressly made that point. So the, the idea, and that's but the real eerie thing from that quote by the spokesperson is is the um, it is a time and tested method and there is nothing untoward about this. There is. Um, I mean, the Constitution was designed in such a way that the specific if you wanted to be in the executive, you needed to be in the legislature. So you needed to have a democratic mandate to make the calls about 
governance in this country. Uh, you know, you can have, I think that you can have two non-MP ministers in cabinet, according to the constitution. But the worrying thing is that this blur between ANC and government and, and, and party and state manifests in three ways. Number one, in this sort of discussion where we see it now from, you know, control of the party means control of the country, who's in control of the party. Number two is it creates this opportunity for the ANC to, as it does, claim government projects as ANC projects. Um, social grants are perceived to be paid by the ANC, not by the South African taxpayer. So it's a very, very beneficial blurring of um, of those lines for political reasons. And then, of course, you get to BEE and preferential procurement, where, again, you encounter this thing that, that Zuma actually embodied is, of, of course, we can do business with the state if we're in the government. We're, after all, the government. So, Herman, um, not to stay on this topic because I do want to move on, but uh, uh, Lissler does point out that I actually said on a podcast a while ago that the ANC, one of the reasons it's managed to succeed in so many elections is that it has um, this incredible organizational structure which has a branch, an active branch in every single ward in the entire country pretty much. So what yes. do you mean when you say the structures are rotted? Um, I think it's the question of what do you mean by active? Um, because they certainly are active. But it is it is becoming um, mini fiefdoms of almost a criminal gangsterism, where right. So the quality, where, the quantity is still yes. there, but the quality has gone way down. Yes, yes. The 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 ability of the party to mobilise its structures is still relatively impressive by other party standards, um, but the branches themselves have become uh, because of the shrinking patronage potential in South Africa. Every little bit of power that you can get within the ANC has become such a hotly contested area because you need that link up to the patronage network if you want to earn an income from your ANC membership. And even the branches where they once were the foot soldiers, especially in KwaZulu-Natal, literally and electorally, of the ANC, they now become mini fiefdoms that are very active, but perhaps not constructive of an overall party a, with a mission, with a strategy. Indeed, there's a lot of time spent shooting each other, <laughs> which was not the case back in the day. All right, let's move on to our next topic. Uh, this is um, about the state of Johannesburg's power entity, City Power. So City Power has been dealing with a lot of outages recently. Um, in fact, I was affected by one that was pretty bad, a couple of days without electricity. And I think most people who live in Joburg know, either know someone or have themselves experienced multiple days without electricity in the past couple of months. Uh, the infrastructure situation is pretty bad and it's made even worse by some news that's come from City Power, which is that uh, this is they've recovered three bodies in three days out of many substa out of substations around the country, uh, around the city. And this is uh, usually someone who's trying to steal electricity. Sometimes it's uh, like a homeless person or someone who's trying to kind of find shelter, but usually it's someone trying to steal the electrical infrastructure. And while uh, in the midst of doing so, they make a mistake and they get killed. Um, this is a common occurrence in Joburg and is costing the city millions and millions of rands. Um, the, that's exactly what happened to the outage near me. Uh, the mini substation got vandalized. Someone stole pieces out of it and 
the thing was old and not in good condition anyway, and so the city had to come and replace the whole thing, which they didn't do a great job of, but I'm not going to go into that too much. Um, Michael, so let me start with you. Uh, it's kind of, it's really grim when you start picking bodies out of the electrical infrastructure. And I think it speaks to a number of different things, but one of them is the economics of risk and the economics of crime, that people are, you know, willing to take this risk, um, presumably because uh, there is a lot of money to be made from selling stolen metal. We know there is. I've spoken before on the show about um, the city of Cape Town pointing out some years ago that one of the remarkable things about Cape Town is, or the Western Cape as is, 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 is a, a province that has no mining at all, has a very, very high export of copper. <laughs> and um, copper is a big export for, it was then for uh, the city of Cape Town. Um, and it was all, it was all stolen copper. Um, so, yeah, we're looking at, you know, the, the tragic consequences of uh, lack of uh, consequences for, for criminals, uh, increasingly people being sensing that they can get away with um, just with stealing things. Um, and then the desperation of thinking to themselves, well, it's a big risk. I might get electrocuted and, and, and frazzled, but the, the income is, I desperately need it. There's no other source of income, maybe, uh, or it's easier income than I could get by having to hustle around and, you know, really battle in an economy that just isn't delivering other opportunities. Um, this is one that, uh, you know, it, it seems relatively easy. I'm prepared to take the risk. I think all these things are combined um, in this in this awful uh, this, this this awful phenomenon of dead bodies being found um, in in state infrastructure, and of course, you know, it then leads to all the things that you mentioned the uh, the breakdowns and the extra costs and the delays and the, all the rest of it. Yeah, um, and that this is all sort of spread across the city. Just also to point out, wasn't in any sort of one area. They found one of the mm. bodies in the Joburg CBD. One was in Randburg, um, and one was in Lanasia. So, so, so quite different areas. Uh, mm. Roman, any any thoughts on this issue? Um, it really, I mean, this is part of an emerging story in the mainstream. But uh, I think anyone who's been living in Joburg knows this for a while. Is that uh, Joburg really is not doing so great, great as a city right now. Yes. Um, and part of the problem here is that I think parties like the DEA spectacularly mismanaged since 2016, not necessarily its governmental responsibilities, but its political narrative of the idea is if a different mayor is in office, things will be better. Nick, as a former councillor, you and ward councillor specifically, you will understand that the governance of a city is an immensely complex thing of networks and networks of collaboration, relationships, uh, legal and illegal. And very, um, very specifically on that, uh, there's been some great stuff written on this by uh, former councillor David Potter who's written about how Johannesburg is essentially run because these systems have been so atrophied and so badly maintained, these kind of official reporting systems, accountability, that kind of thing, that a lot of Johannesburg is run through WhatsApp groups. Mm. Literally, that's how it's done. Yeah. Uh, you have 
uh, and it's, it's, it's difficult to hold people accountable. It's easy to ignore things, but it's the only way you get access to officials. If you are a city councillor, um, the first day you get the job, basically, you get put on a whole bunch of WhatsApp groups with city officials. So you then try and basically beg to do their jobs. And it's just not sustainable. It isn't sustainable at all. And the, 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 the problem here is at what level does a dead body in a substation indicate failure? It could be at, at, at least four or five levels, political, uh, metropolitan or municipal administrative, contracting, security, um, uh, and, and sort of infrastructure management. And it's not quite clear what the failure of, you know, why was there a dead body? At, at what level do we put the failure? And I think the very worrying thing for Johannesburg is it is a very much in an all of the above situation. Um, uh, that that the, the, the failure is so significant that it's not quite clear where to pin it. Um, so you can't start fixing the problem because locating the source of the problem is, <laughs> is near impossible. But uh, on the point that Michael made earlier, uh, a erstwhile colleague of ours, um, Sheldon Boyson, and I once had a, had a conversation about, you know, what is it that draws uh, young kids, young boys especially, in colored communities to this gangsterism culture? And we spoke about exactly that sort of odds of human choice. No one really takes a decision or engages in an action that they believe will be harmful to their self, you know, definition of value, worth, and success. Um, so if you join a gang with a very real possibility of suffering from gang violence, becoming engaged in incredible criminal activities that put your life, life of others, life of your families, uh, members uh, in, in peril. You, the person who does that made a calculation, consciously or subconsciously, about the fact that they want what they want in life is more likely to be gotten through an illegal and criminal life than uh, the alternative, which is essentially a value add, economic participation, social responsible uh, route to choose. If you get to a point where I think electrocution is something and burns and drowning, these are primitive things that you do not need education to understand the horrendous consequences of. If you can get to the point where you know I can burn to death internally, but that is still better than the life I'm leading, it says a hell of a lot about the tortured psyche of our country. Oh, very much so. Uh, Michael, anything briefly to add? By one of our listeners, Dyer. Go ahead. Uh, there we go. Um, I, 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 yes, I mean, uh, just to reinforce uh, reinforce the point, the, the, the comment by um, by one of our listeners, die or starve, what's worse? You know, it, 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 it it's hard for middle-class people to appreciate that people are really confronting this really fundamental um, decision-making. Um, about how to survive, how to, how to get through to the next day, the next week, um, and and have no conception of a future 
that uh, that might be better than the lives they're living today. And I think that is really the difficult thing that we're going to have to reconstruct. Our colleague um, Terence Corrigan often writes about you know the very great task of professionalizing the civil service, which is clearly what needs to be done. But in in a, in a slightly different way, it's it's exactly the same kinds of calculations that are going to have to be overcome. You know, people who are sitting there might have access to resources that they could channel into their own bank accounts and so on or, or just use for their own purposes um, to bring them to a point where they think to themselves well it's actually better to simply abide by the by the rule book and, and do my job properly because that's worth doing and it's going to you know benefit me and benefit the society i think it's going to take quite a quite a lot of work to get ourselves to that uh, to that position and if i might may quickly add something the the, the recovery of south africa lies in um, simply restructuring our social and economic incentives. Mm. Um, and that's one of the questions is which one follows which, um, chicken or egg, social circumstances or economic circumstances. And ultimately that might, we might philosophize ourselves into a corner as to, oh, what should we fix first, society or the economy? But the thing is that an economy, you can measure it, you can it, it's understandable you you deal with human um desires more than the irrationalities of human um uh, uh, you know ambition and and self-actualization so the question is our social incentives need to be revised that we should do in the informal way of good citizenship and societal participation that can't be done from the top but the economic incentives hmm. is the thing that can be quantified to a greater extent. And that is why the economic failures of, of, of the government are, are so tragic. Um, it can, the economy of a society is one of the few levers you can pull to make life better on a sustainable basis. And we're seeing failure there. Okay. Um, so we're going to talk very briefly about, uh, the EFF, who have been acting a little bit weird recently. Um, so we talked yesterday on the show. Oh, there goes my power. We talked yesterday on the show about uh, how the EFF had put out this list of, <laughs> of uh, public reps who hadn't performed adequately by getting enough people to a rally. Uh, and yesterday, Julius Malema um, was having a dinner, a fancy dinner with sort of top elites, people who are friendly with the, the EFF, uh, the uh, alleged cigarette smuggler uh, Mazzotti was there, as well as the suspended public protector Pusisizu and Kobane, as well as Bantu Holomisa from the UDM, which is a bit odd. But anyway, um, they were all there. And during the talk, uh, Malema said two very weird things. Firstly, he made, and I think it was a joke, but I'm not sure, a essentially a threat against Floyd Shavambu saying, don't organize against me while I'll crush you because I'm ruthless. And then also that uh, he went on to say that Mazzotti, who he's been criticized as having a relationship with for a long time, uh, had essentially put up all the money to fund the party in the early days and was, in a sense, one of the fun founders of the EFF. Um, Herman, in, in like 40 seconds, your thoughts? Um, very on a, on a human psychological level. Um, one tells jokes about things that are just outside your character. Um, uh, sort of, uh, or either just outside your character, or so ingrained to your character that it is parodical, or so far outside of your character character that it is unexpected. 
Either this is a joke about the fact that he is so intensely ruthless, or he thinks he just might be able, or it is because he is a funny bunny rabbit. And I think, you know, some of those options for a joke are more likely than others. So it, it, it is a threat. I do think so, if, especially if you go look at Idi Amin interviews, not to compare the two, the one had stature. Uh, but Amin had a sense of humor of, of, of some, you know, oh, that was sinister. And it, <laughs> it, it says a bit about a person. Michael, your take. Yeah, I think, I mean, I used the phrase um, faintly menacing earlier <laughs> referring to the ANC. I think this, this, this one takes the cake. Yeah. Faintly menacing, I would suggest to Floyd. Floyd yeah, Keep an eye. <laughs> I, I really wonder whether the EFF is about to go some very big internal squabbling just before the next election, which will not be mm. good for them. Uh, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll have to see because Malema remains a potent brand in of himself. But uh, you know, there's only so far you can go if your entire organization is passing behind your back. Anyway, um, that's all for today. So we will see you on Monday. Have a great weekend, everyone, and cheers.